So today we continue our sermon series called Movies at Christmas, Christmas at the Movies, and we are going to be looking at a subject matter called It's a Wonderful Life, or Is It? And we're going to talk about what a wonderful life looks like in Jesus Christ, and we're going to use the the movie It's a Wonderful Life, and if you have not seen it, it was actually on last night on NBC. I did not actually... uh, catch it yesterday but uh i did see as i was watching the penn state game i was flipping through the guide and i saw that it was on and so um i thought wow that's perfect timing i picked the movie and they put it on nbc for me um but uh what a wonderful movie of different biblical um perspectives and so we're in week two of the christmas at the movies we're on the second sunday of advent our focus is the hope that offered to us through that which we celebrate at Christmas, God's gift of a Savior in Jesus Christ. Watching Christmas movies has become an important part of the contemporary American Christmas experience. So this year, we decided to tap into that and look at the Christmas story through the lens of some of our culture's greatest Christmas movies. We begin, we again go to the second week. Last week, we looked at the Christmas story. This week, we look at the great Christmas classic, and it's The Wonderful Life, starring Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed. But first, I want us to look at another wonderful life story from Luke's Gospel, the story of a man named Simeon whose life ended as he had always hoped it would. I invite you to follow with me either on the screen or in your Bibles in Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 32. And here's what it says. Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord Jesus, the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Today we're going to look and compare most of the Simeon story with the movie A Wonderful Life. And here's what I have to say. The movie It's a Wonderful Life is is about a man named George Bailey who had ambitious plans to become an architect, travel the world, and live the high-adventure lifestyle he had always dreamed of living. But instead of that life, George Bailey finds himself trapped in a humdrum life in a small town named Bedford Falls, where he stayed to take over his father's building and loan uh, business, making small loans to mostly poor working people, which put him in direct competition with the notorious and greedy Mr. Potter, who refused loans to these same people in order to keep them stuck in his shabby little rental homes. So while George Bailey is struggling to make a living with a wife and four children, Potter is making a boatload of money and controls most of the town's economy. 
But one day, things begin to spiral out of control. For George, when his uncle loses an important bank deposit, conveniently found, of course, by the Mr. Potter himself. This crisis, however, confronts George with the dilemma between closing his building and loan business or going to jail. In state of panic, George wrecks his car, then contemplates suicide by jumping off of a bridge, which is where he meets Clarence, an angel sent to George, how much his life, and Clarence explains to him how much his life is meant to others. At this point, George wishes he had never been born, and so Clarence gives him a picture of life in Bedford Falls without George Bailey. They travel through the town, which is named Pottersville, because George wasn't born, and therefore never changed, um, pot, never challenged Potter's dominance. George's wife is an old maid. His children, of course, were never born, and his brother Harry drowned as the age of eight because George wasn't there to rescue him. Only after seeing the world without his imprint can George truly appreciate the wonderful life he is. He has, and he asks God for the life, the, that life back. When he returns home to his family and friends, he discovers they have turned the tables and have come out to rescue George from his financial crisis. What can we learn from this story about the wonderful life God has given us all? Well, before we go to the first video clip, here's number one point on your sermon outline. You can have a wonderful life by putting others first. You can have a wonderful life by putting others first. In the movie, George Bailey does that often to the point of personal sacrifice. For example, when he was 12 years old, he was ice sledding with some of his buddies. And his little brother, Harry, who liked to tag along to prove that he could keep up with the older boys, Harry's sled went that too far and slipped into a hole in the ice pond. So George jumps to save him. And an act of which, George, which cost George loss of hearing in his left ear. In Luke 2, Simeon is described as these words. If you remember the reading. Righteous and devout. A man who would spend his life waiting for the Messiah to come. Because he had been promised by the Holy Spirit that he would see the Messiah before he died. I want you to understand what that meant for Simeon. When Simeon was in his time and he was waiting for the Lord, that's basically why we have almost half of the Old Testament that we have. For thousands of years he was promised and then Israel would go off the side and they would have to have a prophet come in and remind them. And so there's Simeon and he's waiting and waiting and waiting. Now, what that did for me this week when it put me into perspective, I get frustrated when things aren't done in three minutes. Don't you? I mean, we live in what I used to call a microwave society, and I still do sometimes. If I can't hit the button and have it heated up in three minutes, it's not worth my time. Because that means I've got to sit down and eat it. That means I've got to waste my time doing something. 
And yet Simeon comes and they call him a devout man who waited for years and years. And the Scriptures doesn't say this, but we can assume because they call him a devout and faithful man. Never once does Simeon say, this is a waste of my time. This is a waste of my time. I'm done. Yeah, how many of us, when we get down on life, the first thing we want to do is, if God, you've, you obviously have failed me. Even though he has promised to be there by our sides. The most fundamental verse of which Jesus talked about this kind of life for living for others is in Luke chapter 10, verse 27. It's on the screen for you. And Jesus is having a conversation with a rich young ruler, and he said, or not a rich young ruler, he's having a conversation with some people, and he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it's about. And Jesus comes along and he says, look, when you focus on me, you're going to focus on your neighbor. And it's going to cause you to have a wonderful life. But the problem becomes that when we get our focus off of him, we then don't focus on other people, we focus on ourselves. And then that's where the question in your sermon outline comes wonderful life or is it look i've been in the ministry for 20 some years i don't say that as a bragging thing but i can tell you something when a church keeps their minds on christ things go smoothly when a church gets their minds off of christ and starts looking at themselves bickering starts to happen fighting starts to happen impatience starts to happen why Because they've gotten their minds off of Christ and they've put their minds on what they want and how they want it and what it should look like when they get it. And bang, there's a problem. And so individually, we also have the same issues. When we are focused on Christ, we look at Christ and we say, look, I'm going to be so focused on Christ, then I'm going to be focused on others as I'm focused on Christ. But if I'm focused on myself, I'm only going to care about what's in this, this, this temple And I'm not going to care about what the other person might be feeling. And George, in this scene that we're about to see, he defends his father because Potter is going to go off on his father. You've got to pay attention very quickly because it starts very quickly. And Potter is going to start busting on his father about his father's practices and and how, how, how bad they are and all this stuff. And then George is going to stand up. And he's going to have to have something to say about his father. Give it a listen. Borrow money. <laughs> what is that, Gaddis? A discontented, lazy rabble instead of a thrifty working class. And all because a few starry-eyed dreamers like Peter Bailey stir them up and fill their head with a lot of impossible ideas. Now, I say... Just a minute. Just, just a minute. Now, hold on, Mr. Potter. Just a minute. Now, you're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap penny-ante building alone, I'll never know. But 
neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was... Why, in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Probably... Here, you're all businessmen here. Don't it make them better citizens? Doesn't it make them better customers? You, you said that they... What did you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait? Wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them? Until they're so old and broken down that they... Do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about, I know. Well, I, I, I've said too much. I... You're the, you're the board here. You do what you want with this thing. There's just one thing more, though. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. Come on. The choice between that which is the most gratifying to you personally, which brings you the most immediate happiness, satisfies your felt needs, or that which requires you to restrain your impulses, make a greater sacrifice, and put the needs of others ahead of your own. It's natural to put ourselves first. So natural. Happens every day, does it not? You get up, your wife wants to do one thing, you had something totally different planned. How does it go in most households? I'm not saying that it goes this way in my household. Well, yeah, I am saying that. But when she comes to me and she says, well, I had planned that we were going to go over here. Oh, jeez, man, I wanted to do this today. Well, which one is it? Good marriage is sacrifice. Good marriage is looking at that person and saying, if that's what you want to do, then you know what? I can wait. See, that's the reality. All of us want to fight for ourselves. We, we care about ourselves and that's it. And in community and in connections and in, and in, and in, and in, and in church, can't be that way. Because it's not going to be a wonderful life. You focus on that, that is easy to focus on. It requires a heart transformed by the love of God to put others first. But that's the heart that will give you a wonderful life. And here's the second point on your sermon outline. You can have a wonderful life by resisting temptation and considering the greater good. You see, George Bailey had great ambitions to travel the world, build expensive bridges, and even lasso the moon for his girlfriend, Mary. But instead, George would merely give Mary a drafty old house Four mouths to feed, life in a small town, and very little money. He was tempted, though, with an offer to give Mary a higher standard of living. And all he would have to do was abandon a deeper call upon his life. 
Kind of reminds us of Luke chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus is confronted by the same temptations. Does it not? The temptation to take the shortcut. Take popularity. Take power. Take wealth. But the cost would be to serve the work of Satan, not the purposes of God. In fact, what is always dangerously subtle about temptation is is that just like with Jesus in Luke 4, often the temptation is to do something wrong as much as it is not to do something as much as... Let me get this right. Often the temptation is not to do something wrong as much as, as it is to do something that appears to be good on the surface. Food, followers, and power... But at what price? At what price do we pay if we focus on others? If we take the shortcut and we don't choose the better good for everyone. I love the story of a church plant that started many years ago. You've heard me tell it probably a couple times and I'm going to tell it again this morning. The church plant came into a community And the pastor said, we're going to ask this community what kind of music they like so that we can know what kind of music to bring into our church and attract people. The pastor told us at National Conference a couple years ago, he said, listen, here's what I prayed to God. God, don't let them come back country western. That's all I ask. Because there's something about shout to the Lord with a twang that I can't take. And so it came back. 98% of people liked country western music in that community. And the pastor said to our national conference, I had a choice at that moment. I could take the shortcut and say, no, we're not doing country music because I don't like it. Or I could choose what is right. What's going to bring people to Jesus? Thank God He chose that way. See, there's always times that we have to make sacrifices. George Bailey faces that kind of temptation when Mr. Potter offers him a job in order to control George, get him out of his way, and gain complete control of Bedford Falls. I want you to watch for how subtle such temptation can be in this next clip. Let's look at your side. Young man, 27, 28, married, making, say, 40 a week. 45. 45. 45. Out of which, after supporting your mother and paying your bills, you're able to keep, say, 10 if you skimp. A child or two comes along and you won't even be able to save the 10. Now, if this young man of 28 was a common, ordinary yokel, I say he was doing fine. But George Bailey is not the common, ordinary yokel. He is an intelligent, smart, ambitious young man who hates his job, who hates the building and loan almost as much as I do. A young man who's been dying to get out on his own ever since he was born. A young man, the smartest one in the crowd, mind you. A young man who has to sit by and watch his friends go places because he's trapped. Yes, sir. Trapped into frittering his life away, playing nursemaid to a lot of garlic eaters. Do I paint a correct picture? Or do I exaggerate? 
Well, what's your point, Mr. Potter? The point? The point is they want to hire you. Hire me? Yeah, I want you to manage my affairs, run my properties. George, I'll start you out at $20,000 a year. $20,000 a year? You wouldn't mind living in the nicest house in town, buying your wife a lot of fine clothes, a couple of business trips to New York a year, maybe once in a while Europe. You wouldn't mind that, would you, George? Would I? You're not talking to somebody else around here, are you? You know, th this is me. You remember me? George Bailey. George Bailey. George Bailey, whose ship has just come in. Provided he has enough brains to climb aboard. Holy mackerel. Well, how about the building and loan? Oh, confounded man. Are you afraid of success? I'm offering you a three years contract at $20,000 a year starting today. Is it a deal or isn't it? Well, Mr. Potter, I, I, I know I ought to jump at the chance, but I, I just, uh, I, I wonder if it would be possible for you to give me 24 hours to think it over. Sure, sure, sure. You go on home and talk about it to your wife. I'd like to do that. Yeah, then in the meantime, I'll draw up the papers. All right, sir. Okay, George. Okay, Mr. Potter. I don't need 24 hours. I, I don't have to talk to anybody. I know right now. And the answer's no, no. Doggone it. You, you sit around here and you spin your little webs and you think the whole world revolves around you and your money. Well, it doesn't, Mr. Potter. In the, in the whole vast configuration of things, I'd say you were nothing but a scurvy little spider. You, and that goes for you, too. Often the temptation to is not to do something wrong as much to do something that appears good on the surface. You see it there? George Bailey selling out the potter would not be wrong. It appears so good on the surface. And so today, I want you to understand, Faith Church, that there are times when we will get offers that feel so good on the surface. But they aren't. They aren't the right thing to do. You see, having a wonderful life means knowing the answers to these two questions which will be on the next slide. What does God want for me? What is God's will for my life? The good that is greater than making life all about me. How you answer those two questions will make the difference between settling for an old offer from Mr. Potter or that the world presents to you, 
and having a truly wonderful life. What does God want from me? That answer is found in that Luke 10 passage that I read for you earlier. He wants you to love Him with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. I don't think we grasp just how broad that that spectrum is. It means your brain should be controlled by Him. It means your heart should be ruled by Him. It means your soul, your passion, your, your, your drive should be all about Him. Then the second question is, what is God's will for my life? The good that is greater than making life all about me. And, and this is a thousand dollar question. If I had a thousand dollars for every time I was asked this question as pastor, pastor, can you tell me what's God's will for my life? I'd be a very, in a very better place financially. That's a huge question. Everybody wants to know. And the second part of the answer there, the second part of the question is key to the answer. You must figure out what the good is than making life all about yourself. So when you go into the next situation that you live with, or that you, are, that you, that you uh, walk into, when you go into the next situation, instead of asking, what do I want out of this situation? What do I want out of this relationship? What do I want out of this, this conversation that I'm about to have? Maybe the question needs to be is, what could the Lord do with this question, with this relationship, with this um, uh, uh, opportunity that I have? Instead of asking, what can I get out of it? Maybe the question needs to be more like, what can the Lord do if I give it to Him? How could He use it to draw people upon Himself? And you may, it's going to take work. That's why Jesus did not cut corners and did not leave the mind out of that conversation in Luke chapter 10 he said to mind because he realizes that you're going to have to think when you go into that next conversation that next relationship that next um, um, opportunity you're going to have to stop and, and step back and, and ask what would the Lord want I've been practicing this for a couple of days because I knew this sermon was coming it's amazing how it changes conversations. It's amazing how people that you're frustrated with or angry with become people that you love. Because you see, now you're asking, what does the Lord want? You're not asking, what do I want? It begins to challenge your heart. Instead of being frustrated, instead of ignoring people because you don't really want to get into that conversation, you begin finding yourself going right into the conversation. And you know what it makes for? A happier life. Because now instead of ducking and putting things under the carpet, we are dealing with things. And we're saying, hey, listen, here's where it's at. Here's where it's at. 
Because this is what the Lord wants. This really is the desire of my heart in preaching. The desire in my heart at Faith Church is not so much that you come out and say, that was a wonderful sermon. The desire in my heart is for you to come out and say, now how do I take what Pastor Brett is teaching me through the Bible and actually apply it to my life? Because you know what that's going to do? That's going to take 60, 70, 80 people walking out of here and actually living out the Bible. So much better than just one. So much better. More impact. People are seeing Jesus. It's a wonderful thing. The third point is you can have a wonderful life by doing ordinary things. You can have a wonderful life by doing ordinary things. This is not rocket science, and there's a reason why. Because God didn't ask us to all have to go out and get masters to figure out His plan for our lives. He didn't ask us to go to school and say, hey, listen, you got to excel at school to understand who I am. And that's not to say that it's dumbed down. It's because He wanted to use ordinary people. He doesn't need us to go out and get a PhD or whatever else we need to get. He doesn't need us to do those things. He wants to use people who are, who are just willing and saying, listen, Lord, I'm willing to step back and say, now, what would the Lord want me to do in this situation? That's what he wants to use. I don't see him picking a bunch of people as his 12 that he poured his life into, and especially the three that he poured his life into. I don't see a whole lot of smart people there. And you got Peter, who couldn't figure out a simple conversation. And you can almost sense that Jesus is like, look, Peter, let me put it to you another way. So maybe you get it this time. And that's okay. You know why? Because we all learn differently. Peter is a perfect example of that. I remember going through high school, and, and, I, and I was struggling to go through high school And I remember then they came out with this thing where they taught our teachers about learning styles. I don't know if it was new back in 1994 or what, but they taught them about learning styles. And all of a sudden, my teacher tapped into my learning style. And it wasn't standing up in front of me and lecturing me because you know what I was going to do? It was going to make, now don't get any ideas, jet airplanes and such and throw them in the classroom. I was going to do things that just were not paying attention to the lecturer. But when the teacher hit my lifestyle, my, my learning style, all of a sudden, D's became B's. F's became C's. Because you know what? We all learn differently. The Simeon story is filled with ordinary people and things. We're not told anything about Simeon's life except that he lived a righteous and devout life. He went to the temple as directed by the Holy Spirit where he met Mary and who, and, and Joseph who were there according to religious custom for Jesus' circumcision on the fifth day of the, or on the eighth day of his life. And it was in an intersection of these ordinary events that God brought their lives together for a great blessing. Again, in verse 28, it's not going to be on the screen, it says, Simeon took him in the arms and praised God and then pronounced a blessing on the whole family. An ordinary day with ordinary people doing an ordinary thing, but receiving an extraordinary blessing from God. When Jimmy Stewart was an old man, he was interviewed about, about his reflections on TV on It's a, it's a Wonderful Life. And this is what he said today. 
After some 50 years, I've heard the film called an American cultural phenomenon. Well, maybe so. But it seems to me there is nothing phenomenal about the movie itself. It is simply about an ordinary man who discovers that living each ordinary day honorably with faith in God and a selfless concern for others can make a truly wonderful life. In the movie, George is ready to end his life because he sees himself as a failure. But in that scene, Clarence shows him a life without George Bailey. And here's what it is. There's no Bailey Park where small homeowners have shelter and dignity. His uncle Billy has gone to an insane asylum after the failure of the building and loan company. His brother Harry never became a war veteran or a hero because he had died in the ice pond by the age of eight. His wife Mary lived in an old maid, lived as an old maid and librarian because she never found any other man. Then George, that she wanted to marry. All of this awakens George to the wonderful life he really has. And he decides he wants to live. This is George Bailey's story. And Simeon's story of hope. Let me ask you, what's your story? What's your story? Is it a story of hope? Is it a story of a wonderful life? Or is it? Is it a story where you defended others? Is it a story of grace and mercy? Is it a story of His amazingness and His work in your life? Or is it just another story? Is it sold out to shortcuts and lies from the enemy? Lies of you're not good enough to serve this church. Lies of the fact that you you just don't get it. Lies of Satan. Or is it focused on Jesus Christ and what He says to you? What's your story? I hope your story is a little like this story that we're going to watch.
praising my Savior all the day long. That's your story. I pray that you'll go out today and share that story with others. If it's not your story, I pray that you will come to a place where it can be your story. Where grace is greater than all of your sin. Where mercy wins. Where justice is served. Powerful words. I hope, I pray it's your story. That you quit listening to the Mr. Potters and to the others. But you begin to listen to Jesus Christ and what He has said to you. That He paid for your price that is greater than all your sin. That He has served justice and He loves mercy. And may you stand in a wonderful life because you focused on others and because that is your story. May you do that. Let us close in a word of prayer together. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for this day. We thank You, Lord, for the reminder of Simeon's story. A story of perseverance. One that did not give up after years and years of hearing about a Messiah coming to save the world. We thank You for our story. The story of amazing grace that's greater than all of our sin. The story of justice that has been served and mercy has won. The story of Jesus' kindness that draws us in. May we share that kindness with those that we rub shoulders with, both in this place and outside of this place. May we be a beacon of kindness, of Your kindness, in the malls and in the places that we travel this holiday season. May You remind us it is about others. It's about loving them and serving them. For Lord, it's in Your name we pray this all. Amen. I want to use one of those verses as our closing benediction this morning. It says, O ye beneath life's crushing hand and load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow, Look now for glad and golden hours. Come swiftly on the wing. Oh, rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. May we do that this Christmas season. May we rest in Him. Amen.